the mystery of the universe. You are the God of holiness, and yet you welcome souls like us. Father, help us to appreciate this wonderful truth once more as we consider the resurrection of your Son this morning, and we ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Do be seated. Uh, And uh, there's an outline as usual inside the bulletin for those who want to uh, make notes, if that's what you do, as we work through these verses uh, together. And uh, more importantly, do have Luke 24 open in front of you. So we're going to be, of course, working, referring to this Luke 24. Failing to prepare means preparing to fail. Failing to prepare means preparing to fail. And I was reminded of that just a few months ago. My wife, Melissa, had planned a trip for us to Bangkok in Thailand. And as usual, her preparations were flawless. The hotel bookings, the flights, our itinerary for the stay, everything was planned so well. And the only thing she expected me as her husband to do was to make sure we had everything we needed when we got to the airport and then got on with our journey. So the passports, the boarding passes, and maybe some Thai butt for the trip. Being the typical husband, I left everything to the last minute. I went to the currency exchange the day before. I packed the bags the night before. I printed off the plane tickets on that very morning itself that we were traveling. As we got into the car, Melissa turned to me, as she usually does, and says, Tim, are you sure we're prepared? I said, oh, darling, yes, don't worry, chill. Everything's fine. Get to the airport, get to KLIA, about to reach the check-in counter, and I take out our passports, they're there, good. And then I reach into my bag for my wallet, because inside my wallet is my permanent residency card, which I now need to get out of, and more importantly, get back into the country to stay. Rummaging around in my bag, it's not there. My wallet's not there, which means my PR card is not there. And suddenly I go from being totally prepared and calm to being totally perplexed and very stressed. Melissa's very stressed as well. We get to the uh, passport control, and Melissa knows what she needs to do. She speaks in that language I do not know, Malay, to these guys. I don't know what the phrase for dumb husband is in Malay, but I'm pretty sure it was stated several times. But with a lot of pleading, we got through. We managed to get onto the flight, and with a lot of prayer, when we got back, we managed to get back into the country as well. I should have known better. I shouldn't have left everything to the last minute, but I did, and so I went from being prepared to perplexed in a matter of moments. Sometimes preparing well, it really matters, and it could never matter more than when we prepare for our ultimate journey, for the destination that we are all heading to, whoever we might be this morning, whether we want to think about that or not. We don't really like to think about it, but one day, one out of one of us will face death. We try to put it out of our minds, I know. But we also know that as each day passes in our lives, we draw closer and closer to that day. You'd be amazed what some people are doing to prepare for their death. A few years ago, I found out Larry King, the famous CNN news anchor, he's 
arranged to have his body cryogenically frozen on the day of his death. He's going to be kept in state in a secure facility. He's paying millions for this in the hopes that one day in the far distant future they will be able to revive him and then cure him of whatever he died of and so he can live on. And the scientific community in their opinion pieces have said he's crazy. There's no evidence to suggest that his plan will work. This is pop science. It's not real science. But Larry thinks it's better to have uh, a plan to escape the grim reality of death than not be prepared in any way. Luke has given us this testimony this morning so that we might have a real, a certain hope even in the face of death. A savior who can deliver, a king on whom we can depend. Luke wants us to be prepared for our ultimate tomorrow. And here he shows us wonderfully how Christ alone makes that possible. As we start in these verses, though, we see that those who initially arrived at Jesus' tomb that first Easter Sunday, they were really not prepared at all for what they would find. Come with me to verse 1 of Luke 24 as we start in our first point, seeking the living amongst the dead. And let me read. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Uh, Luke begins his account by reintroducing uh, the women who we've already seen in the previous chapters, the same women who witnessed Jesus dying on the cross just that good Friday. In the previous chapter, Luke 23, 49, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. And these were the same women who saw Jesus buried in the tomb. Again, Luke 23, 55. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And now they have returned. They knew exactly which tomb Jesus was in, or so they thought, and they were expecting to find Jesus still very dead. We know that because they've brought these spices, we're told in verse 1, taking the spices they had prepared, the traditional spices of the day intended to refresh the linen cloths that Jesus' body was wrapped in. They think they're prepared for their duty that morning, and boy, are they wrong. Verse 2, as they arrive, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Uh, This great stone that blocked the entrance to Jesus' tomb, it is no longer in place. We think of stones as like small rocks, pebbles, things that you can pick up, that you can throw. That's not what Luke means by a stone here. We are talking a huge boulder cut out of solid rock, a stone that took several men to move anywhere, and it was held in position by its sheer weight. And the women arrive and they find it is just rolled away. And so naturally in sheer bewilderment, they want to investigate further. They enter into the open tomb, verse 3. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. That's not what they expected at all. When you take flowers to the grave of a loved one, the last thing you are expecting to see is an empty hole in the ground where their coffin and their body once laid. Our world says there is nothing more certain than death and taxes. Dead people stay dead. So Luke says, verse 4, understandably, they were perplexed about this. They had been prepared, but now they are totally perplexed. 
And yet their confusion doesn't last long. Verse 4 again. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Suddenly the women realize they are not alone in the garden at the tomb. Luke tells us these two men appear, and and the women know that they are special. Luke hints at what they are wearing, this dazzling apparel. And so in reaction, the women bow down immediately in reverent fear. They bow their faces to the ground. They know these men are heavenly messengers. They are angels. And the message that they bring to the women clears up their confusion. Uh, Luke summarizes it for us in the next couple of verses, verses 5 to 7. Firstly, the man says to the women, Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? She sounds like a bit like a mild rebuke, doesn't it? Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? You've come to the wrong place, ladies. This is a tomb. It's for dead people. Secondly, verse 6, they clarify, he is not here. He has risen. That's the explanation they give. Jesus has risen. He's not in his tomb anymore because he isn't dead anymore. He is alive. And then the third part of the message is a reminder that makes sense of their rebuke. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And now the mild rebuke that the men give these women, it makes sense. Jesus' resurrection, yes, spectacular. Yes, incredible. But for these women, it should not have been a great surprise. For Jesus had already told them, long before the cross, that yes, even though he would be delivered over to death, on the third day he would rise again. In Jesus' words, this reminder, doesn't just make it clear he would die and he would rise, but... It reminds us as to why it had to be this way. Read with me again verse 7. That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Jesus, the Son of Man, titled for God's promised King for our world, who Luke has already shown in his gospel, demonstrated his awesome authority as he healed the sick, as he cured the blind, as he stilled the raging storms. And yet Jesus knew that his ultimate mission was not to do these things, but to come and not to be served by us, his creation, but to serve us, even to the point of death. And that is what had happened. Jesus was delivered into the hands of sinful men through Judas' betrayal, delivering him over to the Jewish authorities who, through their accusations, delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate delivered him over to the cross. The women knew that these things had taken place. They had seen these things with their own eyes. Jesus had been betrayed into the hands of sinners. He had died a sinner's death. And so these men now ask these women, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? Jesus died exactly as he said he would. Why do you not believe that he rose exactly as he said he would? And thankfully, this jolt to the memory does the trick. Verse 8. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. That was the women's first response once they had understood Jesus had risen from the dead. They didn't go looking for him. No, they went straight back to the other disciples to share with them what they had witnessed. The women's witness, Jesus is alive. 
And before we see the reaction of the disciples, Luke wants to remind us who exactly is bringing them the good news of the resurrection. See verse 10? Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them. All, all women. It's Luke's main point, all women. Luke's key eyewitness testimony to the death, the burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus rests on the words and witness initially of these women. That was a very brave thing for Luke to do in his gospel, given he is seeking to convince the skeptics of his day that Jesus really rose from the dead. I mean, let me ask you, has anyone ever tried to con you before, convince you of something that is too good to be true? Say you've received one of those emails uh, that claims you are the only one, after so much uh, searching, who can help secure an inheritance worth millions. And if you just share your details, your passport, your entire history, uh, and all of your bank account details, then we'll share this great fortune with you. I've received a few of them in the spam box over the years. Here's one example they put online. I'm David T. Didius. Expert in corporate and legal claims. I'm a partner at Thompson & Associates. I'm contacting you in regards to a deceased client who died in an auto accident. He happens to share the same last night name with you. Before his death, my client deposited 22 million US dollars at the vault of a financial institution here in Europe. Documentations regarding these transactions indicates that claims can only be made by his relative family member. Unfortunately, he had no will at the time of his death. All efforts made revealed no link to any of his family members. Blah, blah, blah. You're the only one who can help. Wow. It just sounds so impressive from the start, doesn't it? An expert in corporate legal claims, a partner at Thompson and Associates. Maybe, yes, I can, I can trust this guy in matters of money and inheritance, and I can finally have my millions. Many fall for this trick every year. If Luke was trying to do that, trying to trick us, trying to fabricate the resurrection, then the last thing he would have done in his day was use the word of these women to pull one over in us. Because in Jesus' day, the testimony of women in their culture was not winsome. It was not considered reliable. Their word wasn't even admissible in a court of law. A woman couldn't speak into serious disputes. Of course, we can be thankful today that a woman's word is counted equal with a man's, as it should be. But that wasn't the case in Luke's day. If he's trying to fake the resurrection, he would never have used this initial witness as the foundation to his own testimony. The only reason Luke would ground his testimony in the word and witness of these women is if it really happened this way. It was this group of women who were the first to find Jesus' empty tomb and to hear the words, he is not here, but has risen. And even most of the disciples that they then went to to relay that news, that they didn't take them seriously. Verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Now, we often think of doubting Thomas, don't we? Thomas was the one who didn't believe at first, but actually Luke makes it clear here, nearly all of them were like that. They needed more than this to go on to really believe Jesus had risen from the dead, but thankfully one of them, just one, held out hope, Peter. 
The Apostle Peter, I mean, he knew that Jesus was right in his words because he had learned that the hard way just a few nights before. He swore and boasted, I will never de- deny you, Lord. And Jesus told him, no, you will. Peter protested, and yet, of course, Peter did deny Christ just as Christ said he would. And so having here the women's witness, Peter immediately runs to the tomb to see for himself. Verse 12, Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He arrives, and he sees the tomb, and it is just as the women described it. The stones rolled away, so he stoops and he looks in, no doubt half expecting still to see a dead body, and of course he doesn't see one. What he does see astounds him. Verse 12, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. I mean, what's so marvelous in particular about the linen cloths that had wrapped Jesus' dead body that Peter now sees where Jesus had laid? Well, the first lie that was promoted to try and explain away the resurrection and to deny that Jesus had risen, it came from the religious leaders who were responsible for sending Jesus to the cross in the first place. When the Roman guards came and told them, this has happened, they didn't go, oh, grief, we got it wrong, let's repent. No, they told the guards, you tell everybody, as far as you're concerned, Jesus' body was stolen by his disciples in the night, and so he didn't really rise. But here, what Peter sees, that suggests otherwise. If anyone had gone and stolen Jesus' body, why would they waste precious time and energy unwrapping him in the tomb, the body already after three days decomposing, the linen cloths bound tight, stinking? Surely they would have just taken Jesus, linen cloths and all, and ran. And yet Peter sees these cloths by themselves in the space Jesus had been laid down, as if Jesus had literally risen through them and walked out of the tomb. Uh, No wonder Peter went home in awe at what had happened. But for us today, we have the privilege of knowing what happened in the rest of the story. Has the uh, the risen Jesus appeared to his disciples so that they could know for sure the truth? And that through their witness of the scriptures that we hold in our hands, we could know the truth that Jesus is risen from the dead. He is alive. You see, unlike the women, we have no excuse to be looking for the living amongst the dead. Unlike the disciples, we cannot simply dismiss this as an idle tale. Besides the witness of these verses, there are testimonies of hundreds of those who met with Jesus after his death, many of them who sealed their testimony with his own blood. It is one thing to believe, to die to believe in something. It is entirely another thing It's totally crazy to die for something that you know to be a lie. And yet all but one of Jesus' apostles gave their lives proclaiming, we have seen, we have met, we have eaten with the risen Lord Jesus. They knew he was alive, and most of them gave their lives for that truth. The resurrection means, friends, that Jesus is God's Savior that we cannot live without. He is the one if we are truly prepared for life, even in the face of death. The main headlines this past week have been dominated, haven't they, by the tragic fire of Notre Dame Cathedral. Thousands stood by in sheer horror as they watched that beloved building that had marked the Parisian skyline for centuries, suddenly, before their very eyes, going up in flames. 
And for me, the one statistic that really stood out from all of the news articles about this tragic event was this. It took more than 200 years to build most of the wonder of Notre Dame Cathedral. And yet, at its worst, the fire consumed so much of it in 63 minutes, just over an hour. This awesome church building largely became, in minutes, a smoking ruin. And of course, so many have tried to draw meaning and significance from this shocking event. Some of it's really far-fetched. But the one thing I think it shouts to us loud and clear as a stark reminder is that the very nature of this world, this life, ourselves and what we see around us, it is subject to decay, fragile, temporary. It is, in that sense, here today and gone tomorrow, whether it be like great cathedrals that we think will stand for millennia, or any one of us as members of humanity who want to believe we will live forever even though we know the day of our death will come. Well, we don't know when we will draw our last breath. We know it's going to happen. We know there will be a day when we are here today and gone tomorrow. And God lovingly warns us in his words what we can expect in death. Hebrews 9.27 is clear. Man is destined to die once and then face judgment. Not, not be reincarnated as something else. Not ceasing to exist in every way. No, man is destined to die once and then face judgment. Uh, Jesus, at the heart of the Scriptures, is the only man who has ever truly died, endured death, and then come back, never to die again, to teach us about it. His words carry authority in this area. And he spoke of the reality of judgment more than anyone else in the Scriptures, that, that God is good, yes, and so he must and he will deal with wickedness and evil and suffering in our world one day, but not just the evil out there. To be just and good, he must deal with the evil in here. I know I've used my eyes to lust. I've used my tongue to lie. I've used my hands to hurt. I, like all of us, have failed miserably to love God and my neighbor, neighbor as I should. I fail to live up to my own uh, moral standards, let alone God's. And that is why we are rejoicing this morning, friends. That is why Easter is such good news, because at the cross, we see the Son of Man, God's promised King for His people, delivered over to death for our sakes. The one who committed no sin, but as God's Son took the penalty we deserve in full. God, as the offended party in the person of His Son, takes on Himself our offense against Him so that we might not have to pay that otherwise impossible debt ourselves. We might be cleansed, forgiven, restored to God, to know and enjoy Him as we were made to do entirely on the basis of what Christ has done, entirely through faith in what Christ has done, and we know that that rescue is effective because today, this morning, we meet, we gather to celebrate the fact that sin and death did not hold Jesus, it could not hold Jesus. As we read earlier in Psalm 16, God's King did not see decay, He defeated our greatest enemy in death 
as he rose to incorruptible life, never to die again. And it's in his resurrection that we see that with him, with Christ, we can prepare for our death without fear of failing, without fear of judgment, without fear of condemnation, for in him we have the assurance of resurrection life. With him. And so have we received him? Have we bowed the knee to the King and Saviour God has given us in His Son whom we celebrate today? Because if we fail to prepare, friends, we do prepare to fail. The resurrection shows us Jesus and His cross is our only hope. He is the one who alone has conquered the grave for us. If you're still uncertain about Jesus, His Lordship, His salvation, I encourage you, go along to that Christianity Explored course and assess the evidence for yourself that Christ is King in whom we can know resurrection life. But if you know Jesus is that King, whom you know you've been denying to this point in your life, can I encourage you, please turn to Him who offers forgiveness and life this day to you. Bow the knee and know the promise of sins forgiven and the eternal rest that he alone can bring. Well, I guess it's for the majority of us here today, that is something we have already done. We are rejoicing in Christ, our risen King. So what about us as his people? Or like the women, like Peter, let's ask ourselves, has our wonder at the resurrection turned to witness as it did for them? You see, the resurrection means Jesus is God's King. Others need to know. In him alone we can say, death is dead, love is won, Christ has conquered. He is the king that our world desperately needs to know that is otherwise perishing away in sin and in death. A memorial service for a friend of mine was held just last month. Uh, his name was Jerv. He was a good Christian brother. He, he passed away in his early 40s, having battled with cancer for more than half his life. And in the months leading up to his death, he invited all of his friends and all of his family and all of his colleagues and basically anyone he had ever met to sign up to his newsletter so that he could keep everyone updated on how he and his family were preparing as his health deteriorated and he came closer and closer to death's door. And, and what did he call his newsletter? Light and Momentary Troubles. Light and momentary troubles. Here was my friend dying of cancer. In the full knowledge that he had months to live, before he would leave behind his wife and his children. And that grief was great. That grief was great. And yet even so, in the midst of their grief, Jerv was still determined to make it clear to as many whom he knew that these were for him light and momentary troubles, because he had a hope that was greater than death itself. He had a king in whom he could rejoice forever. Even as his mortal body wasted away, Jove rejoiced in the truth of the resurrection, and he desired to see as many whom he knew share in that same joy, share in that same hope. You know, I find that personally so challenging as a Christian because I look back and I see so how often in far smaller trials and far smaller sufferings, I've just grumbled 
I've been bitter and I've sulked and I've felt sorry for myself. Why is this happening to me? And here's my friend Jerv. Despite his far greater sufferings, still concerned, this is an opportunity to tell others of my light and momentary troubles as I point them to the unshakable hope that is mine in Christ. Friends, it is in the storms that we face and how we respond to them as God's people that our witness to Christ as our risen King in whom we have eternal life, that witness is proven true. As we still resolve to rejoice in Him, come rain or shine, knowing that even in the midst of our sufferings that are painful, that are bitter, we have an anchor, we have Christ who is our life. And so we still rejoice and encourage others to know Him, to trust on Him, to live on Him who will never abandon us, even in the grave. As we look forward to the day when He will raise us up to know resurrection life rather than the judgment we deserve. All entirely out of God's love to us shown in His Son that first Easter. Friends, as those who are prepared in Christ for the day of our death and the day of His great judgment, of His kingdom that will never perish, let's be endeavoring to prepare others in the following weeks, months, and years that they may also rejoice with us. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. So repent and rejoice and tell others to do the same. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we celebrate today our risen Savior, our risen King, in whom we have the promise of forgiveness of sins and of eternal life entirely on the basis of what Christ did as He went to the cross to deal with our every sin, and then conquered death itself as he rose again to incorruptible life. Help us to resolve to rejoice in him, whatever we might face in this life, as we look forward to his kingdom to come. Help us to be those who indeed are found to have trusted on Christ and so found faithful in him. Prepare us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.